morning again, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have one, there should be one seat back or close by. Please get one. We're going to cover a lot of text this morning. It's going to be important that you see it and follow along as we move through a large portion of Acts chapter 13. And there is not only lunch today after church, there is free lunch today after church. So please stick around and uh, enjoy a meal with us after church today. We would love to do that with you. As I begin this morning, we're going to want you to imagine with me for a moment. Imagine we're on the 39th floor of the Marriott Marquis in downtown San Diego. That's the kind of funny looking glass building. It's about 7.15 p.m. So the beautiful golden California sky draws us to the window. As the sun is setting, we take the scene in together. Directly in front are rows of yachts lining the harbor with shadows dancing across their bows. A bit further in the distance is the winding Coronado Bridge with sailboats tucked underneath it and paddle borders in between. Against the backdrop of mountain of the mountain peaks of Mexico, way off in the distance, the golden sun is casting its shadow along the shoreline while a large Navy vessel drifts by. Beautiful city we live in, right? We call home. But as we're taking it all in, someone says, isn't this a great window? It's so open, so large. The glass that it's set in is, it's an unusual metal frame. The person then takes out a small knife and begins scraping off some of the pieces of the metal from the window and says, I'm going to take this to analyze it and learn what type of metal this window is made out of. What do you think? Besides the fact this person's a bit crazy, you would have to conclude that for all of this person's admiration for windows, they had missed the whole point of what a window is. That window was placed there strategically on the 39th floor of the Marriott Marquis in downtown San Diego for us to see, to display the, the beautiful beauty of the San Diego skyline and in turn try to get you to pay ridiculous amounts of money for a hotel room. This morning, as we go back into Acts chapter 13, we're in the middle of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And after being called by the Holy Spirit, the church sent them out to proclaim the Word of God. And after a, a short time on the island of Cyprus, as we considered last week, they again set sail this morning. And upon securing their, their ship or getting their feet off the ship and setting them on the ground... They waste no time, as we're going to see, proclaiming the Scriptures. Particularly, they're going to do this in the synagogue amongst the Jews and the God-fearers. And our focus this morning will be on Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. There's going to be six of these. This is the first one. And by Paul's preaching, it's evident Paul understands the true meaning of a window. The Scriptures are a Wonderful window, brothers and sisters. But they are a window whose primary purpose is to display the beautiful reality of God in the person of Jesus Christ. A reality the Jews had missed. The Jews approached the Scripture, or at least the leadership of the Jews, some of the Jews, a majority of the Jews we might say, they approached the Scriptures similarly to the man interested in a, taking a metal analysis of the window structure. In their zeal and passion for the text of Scripture, they had, in fact, missed the entire point of the Scriptures. Speaking to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But, and, it is they that bear witness concerning about me. And that phrase, you search the Scriptures, was a technical phrase for scribes and 
Those who labored over the text with great concentration, with great devotion and obsession. But tragically, though they held the Scriptures in great regard, and though they always had their nose stuck in the text, even believing their association with it could somehow earn them salvation or eternal life, they missed the whole point. They dissected the Scriptures, diagnosed the Scriptures, and even memorized the Scriptures. But they failed to truly gaze into the Scriptures to see the beautiful realities of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to enter the synagogue this morning where the Word of God is open, where the Word of God is honored, where the Word of God is being taught. And when given the opportunity to speak, Paul redirects everyone's attention away from the window frame by forcing them to see, to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and Him, His person, His work as the true fulfillment of history itself. And we learn that Jesus, in this sermon of Paul, we learn that Jesus is the point and promise of redemptive history and the Savior of all who believe in Him. Jesus is the point of it all. And He's what the whole redemptive history promised was coming. And He's the Savior of everyone who believes in Him. Now given the length of this text, our our, our focus this morning is going to be where we left off last week from verse 13 all the way down to verse 43. You'll understand why I'm not going to read it full stop before we begin. We'll take it apart as we go. But I'm going to pray for our time before we do that. So let's bow our heads one more time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, even in that opening illustration, that setup, I pray in what we do now, will not just be pulling out details, will not just be dissecting language and grammar and following the argumentation of Paul. It will be to do all of that to the end of seeing the beauty of Jesus. God, when we see the beauty of Jesus, we're changed. So change us, Lord, by Your Word, through Your Spirit. The glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What began, we've made it through chapter 13 in Acts. What began with a small group of about 120 really unimportant disciples has started, has begun to turn the world upside down. Upon Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, He sent, just as He promised, He sent His Holy Spirit to empower His people to bear witness to Him, beginning in Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, and on to the ends of the earth. The birthing of that story is what we've been witnessing thus far in the study of Acts. The power of the risen Christ is advancing through the preaching of the gospel. That's the point. And as we've been moving through this story, an important transitional moment took place, starting in 10. We're still in the middle of it, on through 15. The message of Jesus moved from what seemed like merely a subcategory of Judaism to a message for all people, uniting both Jew and Gentile in Christ. By the end of Acts chapter 10, God made clear the door was open for the Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus, and furthermore, Gentiles could walk through that door as Gentiles, not having to become Jews. Just as He promised, Jesus is advancing the Great Commission through His church, The gospel is going forth. People are coming to Christ. Churches are being started. Missionaries are being sent out to preach the message of Jesus to places never thought of before. Antioch of all places. Modern day Syria. The Spirit calls, commissions the church to send out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey to take the gospel message even further into Asia Minor. After proclaiming the word of God on the island of Cyprus last week, they're being led by the Spirit They set sail again this morning, which brings us to chapter 13, verse 13. Focus of our sermon text this morning is a sermon this morning by the Apostle Paul. But before Paul can stand to preach, an unexpected turn of events takes place. There's a pathway upon which Paul has to get to his Proclamation will kind of be my first heading here is the pathway to proclamation. So Paul, Barnabas, and John, Luke threw that in last week. John was there. He set, they set sail for Paphos, headed to Pamphylia in southern Asia Minor, 
around 400 miles from Jerusalem. And from there they head north to Antioch in Pisidia. However, in the midst of this journey, some conflict arises. It says verse, one, or verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from, Paph- from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Without commentary, Luke tells us that one of their companions, John, turned back to Jerusalem. Doesn't seem like much of a detail here. He turned back. And while much speculation is offered, if you want to read it, go grab some commentaries and start reading it. You'll find a lot of ink spilled, but guess what? At the end of it, we honestly just don't know what happened. We can speculate all we want. We don't know why John turned back. What we do know is how Paul did not approve of this. In Acts chapter 15, when Barnabas wants to reunite with John and bring him along for another trip, Paul is against this. And the reason he gives is in verse 38. He says, was because John, he says, withdrew. Or maybe your translation has, he deserted us. In other words, there was a conflict that happened here. John's leaving was unacceptable to Paul. Paul saw it as an abandonment to the mission. He saw it as abandonment to the commitment that John had made. This was a serious issue for Paul that would lead eventually to the somewhat separation of Paul and Barnabas for a season. Barnabas, being the peacemaker, being the encourager, being the man that we know he is, as we looked at last week, he's going to affirm John again. He's going to team up with him. While Paul is going to therefore start teaming up with Silas and going forward as two kind of separate teams in Acts chapter 15. So while details of what took place are missing, it's obvious conflict was a part of this first missionary journey. And that seems kind of wild to us. Like being sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit on this most important task, which will produce great spiritual fruit, these men experience real conflict at the beginning. It's very important that we don't over-spiritualize the life and ministry of the apostles. They were normal brothers. Uniquely called by God, yes. Uniquely with a call that we don't have, yes. But uniquely called by God as sinners in the middle of their sanctification. Just like you and I. And if they had trouble and relational conflict in their work, why would we believe there would be none in ours? If the Apostle Paul was not immune to relational conflict in ministry, then we are not dealing with reality to think that we won't have it as well. But that's not the point. The point is this. The trouble and conflict did not deter them from the mission. The next line says what? But they went on. They continued to preach. They continued to see people come to faith in Christ. They continued to establish churches. Conflict is inevitable in life, brothers and sisters. Conflict is inevitable in Christian ministry, brothers and sisters. Why? Because you were involved in it. And I'm involved in it. The question is, how do we deal with it? People will offend you. People will let you down. People will disappoint you in church. Your pastors will disappoint you. And guess what? You'll do the same to other people. We must seek to model humility, integrity, repentance in the church. And that looks like us keeping the mission central in all that we do. We should take the gospel and the mission of the church. This is a quote that I was often told by a former pastor and mentor of mine. That we should take the gospel and the mission of the church Utterly serious at every instant. But not ourselves too serious. The glory of Christ and the task of making Him known is what the Christian life and the mission of the church is about. But they went on. It's to remain the conclusion of our lives. And that's what comes, that's what we see in verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. You can imagine 
Paul and Barnabas nudging each other. Oh, I got something to say. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, As was their missionary strategy, upon entering a new city, they first engaged the Jewish presence. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue for worship. And as was the custom, two readings, they knew this, one from the law and one from the prophets would have been offered, followed by a time of open sharing by those in attendance. We know this, we've seen an example of this in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, when Jesus, after reading the prophet Isaiah, announced to the shock of everyone, he had something to say as well. He stood up and said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Paul and Barnabas pounced on this opportunity. They enter the synagogue, wait for the reading to take place, then they leverage the time of open mic to preach the gospel. They didn't try to create some new and unique way of engaging people with the gospel. They simply embedded themselves in what was taking place. They took advantage of the natural opportunities in front of them and they presented Jesus. They entered into the normal rhythms of the people, but they did so with clear intentionality to speak forth Jesus. We can overcomplicate what it means to share the gospel. We can overcomplicate what it means to live a faithful life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are times when we do need to create new things in a sense. But most of the time, God already has you uniquely connected in relationships and people. We just have to take advantage of those and live with intentionality to share Jesus within those. Notice verse 16 again. So Paul stood and motioning with his hand said, Text says, Paul stood up. Paul said. Two simple phrases, two simple words, I think that does say so much about what it means to live as a faithful disciple of Jesus. Faithful discipleship demands, requires both a boldness and a confidence. This was a bold move by Paul, especially given his background and his pedigree as a well known Jew. To come to the place of worship, knowing the custom and tradition and take advantage of it this way, in this setting, to preach the gospel was a bold move. Faithful discipleship requires a level of boldness. But boldness goes way beyond personal traits. Like Some of you are bold in the, in the way that you just operate in your, in your, in your person. And you're willing to do and stand up in front of people and do difficult things. And that's not a bad thing. But that's not boldness, biblically speaking. That could be more just confidence in yourself. And in fact, it could be the opposite of boldness that the apostles display here. Remember, they prayed, they prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants and continue to speak your word with boldness, they said. So they knew boldness was something unnatural to them. They knew that boldness required a supernatural means in their life. We need boldness to stand and speak. We need boldness to enter into places and share the gospel. But biblically speaking, boldness stems from a confidence in the gospel. That's what Paul demonstrates in his life. Paul's boldness stemmed from his belief that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and the Greek. Paul believed that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul believed that man is born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Paul's boldness came from that. A confident belief in the power of the Gospel. Do we believe that, church? Do you believe that? Do you possess confidence not in your ability to perfectly proclaim the details of the Bible, but a confidence that God's power can and does operate through the means of our simple proclamation of Jesus. Contained in our proclamation of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the Bible says, because God is at work through His people. Do we believe that? Or do we tend 
I'll call myself guilty. Do we tend to predetermine who will accept Jesus? Who will not accept Jesus? Do we tend to predetermine how God will tend to work and who He will tend to save and not save? If so, no matter how loud and upfront, or let me say loud is not a good word, no matter is how willing you are to speak, that's not boldness at all. Boldness and faithful obedience as a disciple of Jesus begins with true confidence in the power of the Word of God, in the power of the Gospel. But now, let's turn to Paul's example of that reality in his sermon. And there's really three movements I want us to consider in his sermon. And the first one is this, that God's I want to consider God's purposeful acts in Israel. Paul stands to deliver his message and address his audience. And he addresses them, men of Israel, and you who fear God. He says, listen. God-fearers is a technical term here for Greeks who revered the God of Israel. Remember Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, was referred to as a God-fearer. This description shows up again in verse 26. Sons of Abraham and those who fear God. In verse 17, Paul begins his discourse with a rehearsal of God's purposeful acts in redemptive history through Israel. He says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during the stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an, as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Notice Paul's collective language there. He says, our fathers. Well, Paul begins with the initial and really foundational narrative of the Bible. God created a people through Abraham. He made a promise to bless them and to make them great. And upon their enslavement in Egypt, God fulfilled His promise by making them as numerous as the sands of the sea. They multiplied under the hand of Pharaoh. They became a great nation. And then God rescued them through His mighty hand from slavery in Egypt. And then He brought them into a new land under the leadership of Joshua that they might serve and worship Him in their own place. And this came at the hand of their sovereign, gracious God. The language there is important. God chose Israel. God made them great. God led them out of slavery. And after he put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness, God destroyed seven nations. And God gave them their land as an inheritance. God did all this. Verse 20. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now Paul's play-by-play of Israel's history is going to take a turn at King David. He described God's action as removing Saul. Remember, the people asked for a king. And they were told not to do that because they already had a king. God himself was their king. But they asked for a king so they could be like the other nations, and God granted their request. But then God removed Saul, important language here, and he raised up David to be king. And in David, Paul points out God found a man after his own heart. A man to accomplish his very will. But then from David, Paul leaps over thousands of years of history to the promise of a son of David who will deliver the nation. He says, of this man's offspring, verse 23, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed, he goes to John the Baptist here. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The history of Israel peaked economically, socially, but most importantly, theologically, through the kingship of David. All the promises of God came to bear on the person and more importantly, the throne of David. As we've been reading, uh, we've been reading first, we've been through Chronicles and the Psalms, which has been a Bible reading plan as a church. It's been really fruitful. 
Um, in First Chronicles chapter 17, God made a covenant, a promise with the nation through David. Speaking to David following his announcement to David said, I'm going to build you a temple. And God follows that. God promised David the nation. He said, quote, I will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before him. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. Israel's hope, their relationship to God through his steadfast love, his covenant commitment was dependent upon the throne of David being occupied by one of his descendants in some sort of eternal manner forever. Paul says God has sent that son, Jesus, the savior of his people, just as he promised. And he is no mere man. His sandals on his feet, no man is worthy to stoop down and untie. Paul's understanding of Israel's history centered on the person of Jesus. God brought forth as a, Jesus as a Savior, just as He promised. You could sum up the whole Testament that way. God brought forth Jesus as a Savior, just as He promised. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. This is Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus, walking on the road with the disciples, explaining how everything in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he says, find their fulfillment in me. Paul understands that completely. Notice Paul's interpretive authority. It is the Scriptures themselves. <laughs> Paul's not showing up to these Jewish leaders, these God-fearers, and these Jewish men here, and he's not saying, hey, I got a new message for you about Jesus that you need to believe. Paul's saying, Jesus did not come to amend redemptive history. Jesus is the fulfillment of redemptive history. Jesus is the point of what you guys are studying. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. He's the promise of the scriptures. All of it points to Jesus. That's the message of redemptive history, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the true meaning of history. History itself pivots, points. It's pointed to the Lord Jesus. All things, Paul says in Colossians, was created by Him, for Him, and through Him. Paul's making that very clear. For you this morning and for myself, Is that true of our life, though? Is Jesus the point and the purpose of your life? Does Jesus inform every area of your life? Does Jesus inform your singleness? Does Jesus inform your marriage, your engagement? Does Jesus inform your parenting? Or does Jesus inform your desire to have children? Does Jesus desire, does He inform how you work, what you do, how you do it? Does He inform how you serve your, use your time? Does He inform how you spend your money? He's the point of all things. All of redemptive history finds its purpose and meaning in Jesus. Therefore, all of the purpose of your very life and existence finds its purpose in Jesus. You want to know what your life's about? Know Jesus. You want to know what you've given, been given every breath to wake up every day for? Know Jesus. He's the point of it all. But not just the point of Jesus, not just the reality of Jesus, but the person and work of Jesus, which Paul turns to in verses 26 to 37. He turns to God's kind of providential acts we'll see in his son. So the climax of history, the true beauty of Jesus' person is found in his work. So in a similar fashion to Peter in Acts chapter 2, Paul lays out 
the gospel message, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with complete boldness and with utter clarity. 26, brothers, sons of, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. He addresses them again. Listen to what he says. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. In the third chapter of the Bible, third chapter of Genesis, following the entrance of sin into the world, God promised He would send a Savior. The first gospel good news announcement was issued to the serpent that a male child would be born. And though the serpent would bruise his heel, this child with a bruised heel would therefore deliver a death blow to the serpent. The rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that promise which finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham's blessing. Jesus is the true descendant of David. Jesus is the prophesied lamb that was slain. Salvation has come in Jesus. Salvation has come to the Jews in Jesus. Orthodox Judaism today, which is still awaiting the Messiah, is wrong. The promised Messiah has come to His people. And He has come in the person of Jesus to bring salvation, to crush the head of the serpent upon the cross. And he was rejected by his people. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. They didn't understand the Bible, which are read every Sabbath. They got their nose in it, he's saying. But they're staring at the window frame and refusing to look into it. But their rejection actually fulfilled was fulfilled by their condemning him. Those who knew the Scriptures and were called to lead the people by the Scriptures rejected Jesus and therefore rejected the Scriptures which testify of Him. And yet even their rejection proved a fulfillment of what God had promised in His Scriptures. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. Though Jesus possessed no sin, no guilt, He was the sinless Son of God. They executed the sinless Savior of the world, the promised Son of David, the Son of God. Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. On Good Friday here, we highlighted how many of the events that took place surrounding the death of Jesus were fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah spoke of the Messiah's hands and feet being pierced and lots being cast from his garments. Going against normal crucifixion process. I was going to say policy. I don't know that. Maybe it was policy, but process. The normal rules of crucifixion. Jesus' legs were not broken, which in fact was a prediction of Psalm 34. Zacharias spoke of the future one who, who would be pierced, and the people would look upon and mourn for him like one who mourns for an only child. And after his brutal death, they removed him from the cross and they laid him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, as predicted in the Old Testament. But Jesus did not stay dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. As Paul tells us, appearing to at least 500 who became witnesses of the resurrection, some of those very ones, the disciples, speaking to the people now. And it's the resurrection, Paul says, which demonstrates Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and all of Israel's hope. Verse 32, Paul begins to point the tip of the gospel arrow now upon his hearers. And we bring you good news. The gospel. What God promised to the, to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died. David fell asleep. And he was laid with his fathers. And David saw corruption like everyone else. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. God the Father vindicated and forever solidified the identity of Jesus as His prophesied Son and as Savior of His people by raising Him and exalting Him to His right hand in the heavens. Paul is making clear how this passage, these passages, these psalms, they cannot ultimately be about David. Because while David served his purpose, he died. He didn't get up. He saw corruption. He fell asleep with the rest of Israel's fathers, demonstrating himself to be a mere man, demonstrating himself to be a pointer to the Messiah, a pointer to the true king over Israel, but not the ultimate true king of Israel himself. But Jesus rose in victory, never to see corruption. And there's our promise, and there's our hope, and there's Israel's hope. At the resurrection, Jesus was forever enthroned as God's Son. The true descendant of David, the resurrected King, and the true Savior of His people. He has forever conquered our enemy, death. And as we sing at Christmas time, He reigns over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is Jesus fulfilled the role that Adam did not. Jesus fulfilled the role that Israel did not. Jesus fulfilled the role that you and I have not and cannot. He lived a perfect life, a life of perfect righteousness. He lived a life in complete conformity and obedience to the Father's will. And yet He died as the sinless substitute for sinners, bearing the wrath and judgment of God due our sin. And then He rose victoriously, demonstrating Himself to be the true Savior of His people, to be the eternal Son, the One whom they were waiting to take His seat upon the throne of David forever. Paul is saying to these Jewish people, to this crowd. Stop dissecting the window for a moment and simply gaze into it and see the beautiful reality of Jesus as the purpose of it all. Do you do that enough? I was so convicted by this passage this week. Praise God. Because of your faithful giving, I'm paid to study the Bible, to dissect grammar, to follow lines of argumentation, to cross-reference, to look at original language, to try to do the best I can to study the text. But I was not brought to tears this week as I was looking at Jesus. He is the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is Jesus. Our beautiful Jesus. He is the point of all things. Do you know Him? I mean, I'm asking you honestly. Not know about Him not trying your best to scratch at the window and figure out the details. Have you seen the beautiful, lovely, resurrected Jesus? Is He Lord of your life? That's the point of it all. And Paul's going to make that plea next. So we see next the plea for salvation to all peoples. It's not enough to simply know and believe who Jesus is. Jesus demands repentance and faith. Because He is holy and righteous and true and we are sinners, we can't come to Him apart from repentance and faith. Paul now offers a plea for the people's belief in Jesus. Though the good news was given, he says, and rejected by 
Israel in the past, second chance is leveled here. He lays it before them again. Paul offers the plea for the forgiveness of sins through belief in the person and work of Jesus. And he says, for this, a great reversal will happen. For them and for you. If you accept Jesus, this great reversal is offered to us. Enslavement to sin and our attempts to earn our righteousness is replaced with freedom and a true worth and value and a righteousness of God. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man's, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses here is a reference to the consequences of sin. The law is good and righteous and true. It comes from a good and righteous and true God. But it reveals that we are not good, righteous, and true. It reveals that we're sinners. The law reveals our sin. It testifies to our just condemnation in our sin. But through Jesus, belief in Him, we can be forgiven, freed from the condemnation of God, and declared righteous before God. This message of grace stands against the backdrop of God's impending judgment, though. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul knows the heart of man. The text he quotes here is from the prophet Habakkuk concerning the expression of God's judgment in the Old Testament to the fall of Jerusalem, which God judged His people in the past for their rejection of Him. The question sits on top of them and on top of us. Will he not in this age also judge those who reject the free offer of forgiveness through the work of his son? Don't be fooled. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are one and the same. If you, if you, forget, if you reject the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, you are left because of your own doing to the wrath of God that awaits us. There's no middle ground in life. We like to believe that. We like to make that up. We like to say things like, well, yeah, I'm not actually following Jesus yet, but I'm also not condemned in my sin yet, or I'm not following, I'm not running away from God, I'm just not, haven't decided yet. John 3.16 is one of the clearest depictions of the love of God in the person and work of Jesus that we have in our Bibles. For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. Such a magnanimous way that He gave us His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What a wonderful verse. I was able to quote that verse to someone last week and see them come to faith in Christ. A fascinating reality. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But the reason that reality is so wonderful and beautiful is John three seventeen. We stop there and we should not. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But listen to what it says. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is either condemnation now or forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus now. There's no middle ground. Do you know Jesus this morning? Don't be fooled to think you're waiting to decide whether you're going to accept reality of Jesus or then at that moment accept you want condemnation. No, the reality is the message of the gospel comes to condemn people now. We are currently sinners. God is currently holy. We are currently disconnected from Him in our sin. And in that moment, while we were weak in our sin, Christ died for us. And the message of the gospel stands of His free gift of His love and grace to you today. It's a plea. Receive the grace and mercy of Christ. As it went on, it says the people begged. 
these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. As they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. There's a question here is what does follow them mean? Does it mean that they truly believed? I think it does because it said they continued. They asked them, they told them to continue in the grace of God. I think they believed. So on this first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas were sent out as, as, with a clear mission. And at the heart of that mission is a message concerning Jesus. The heart of the church's mission is a message about Jesus. The missionary endeavor demands proclaiming the beauty of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is not an option to be considered. He's a Lord to be submitted to. But He is a beautiful Savior to be received. He is the point and the promise of history itself. He is the true meaning of every event in history and every moment of your life. And I mean everything. The most vile and unjust events of history, the most wicked things that have happened to you, merely scream for the need of a Savior that God has provided. And all the beauties and wonders of this world are simply meant to strengthen our palate. To taste and see just how good and lovely our Jesus is. Psalm 27, 4. David asks, one thing I, I, one thing I ask of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That request of King David has been fulfilled in the Son of David. For we have seen the glory of God, we have beheld the beauty of his person and the perfection of his Son. Is that your confession today? We could say it this way, David's psalm. One thing I know, and the one thing I am going to forever have, is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord because I know the Lord Jesus. Is that your confession this morning? Don't miss the treasure contained in this book. Don't be the one distracted by trying to analyze the Bible at the expense of experiencing its real purpose. The display of the beauty of Jesus. The real purpose to reveal to you the perfection of Jesus through the person and work which unlocks everything about who you are. What your purpose ultimately is. The true meaning of history itself. See the beauty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Him, repent. Turn from your sin. Confess what God knows to be true about you already. That you are not deserving of God's love. You're not deserving to experience His beauty. You're not deserving of eternal life. That's true for every one of us. That's our confession in sin. We're not worthy in and of ourselves. But our confession is that God has done something in His grace and His mercy to give it to us. Receive it. I leave you with a quote from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon from a sermon he quoted entitled The King and His Beauty. He's getting to the end of his sermon. He's, as he often does, he's pleading with those who don't know Christ to come to Christ. But he's also pleading for Christians to further follow Christ. He says, fling wide then the portals of your soul. He will come with that love which you long to feel 
He will come with that joy into which you cannot work, your poor, depressed spirit. He will bring you joy, which now you have not. He will come with His flagons of wine and sweet apples and cheer you till you shall have no other sickness but that of love, overpowering love divine. Only open the door then, but have no other sickness than that of love. Only open the door then to Him. Drive out His enemies. Give Him the keys of your heart. And He will dwell there forever. And your eyes shall see the King in His beauty. Father, we, we love You. And we love You because You first loved us. And we love You because You were altogether lovely. God, we thank You that You have given us out of an act of grace, You've given us access to know the wonderful realities of the point of all things that it's Your Son. God, I confess and I lead our people in Confessing that we often chase after beauties that are vain and distorted in this world. We love the wrong things. We give our hearts to the wrong things. And God, we recognize that you are the most beautiful one, the most lovely one. And you are the Definition, the foundation, the mark of what true beauty is. And God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you that in him we see the glory of your person and the perfections of your reality. God, help us to see the beauty of Christ. Help us to love Jesus, to live for Jesus. And out of an act of devotion and a sweet fellowship with Jesus to share you, to speak of you, to stand and to speak. God, even now as we sing, your glory is so beautiful. Might you sink that reality into our hearts. We would not just consider Jesus as helpful, as good, all those things He is. He's altogether lovely. Jesus, we thank You for the Gospel. In Your name we pray, Amen.